0: Blog Talk Radio. Music.
1: fans everywhere. My name is Michael LeColent, also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, and I welcome you to this evening's episode of a Metzian Podcast. Uh, Very quickly, let's bring on Sam. Sam, Sam Maxwell, our president of Podcast Operations. How are you, sir?
2: What's going on, everybody? Thank you, uh, Mike, Uh, and uh, of course, thanks to our guests. Uh, It's been a surreal time. We've talked a, a lot about it off air, how We still it still hasn't completely settled in that we're on to a new era. You know, we haven't seen everything going on yet, Um, but a lot of the history is going to come back. And that's basically one of the things that's basically what we're doing right now is helping the history come back. Indeed, you
1: know, uh, everything. in it's time Uh, patience. You can't do everything in a day, folks. So that said, let's bring on this evening's guest because we have a lot to talk about and cover. Uh, he returns to the podcast to further discuss his latest work, The New York Mets in po- in Popular Culture, Critical Essays, edited by David Crow. Welcome back to a Metsian podcast, sir. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you're quite welcome. Please take some time out, tell us, what you've done previously to this book and where you're doing it where we can find it tell us a little bit about about yourself sir
3: well it can be found at amazon of course and it really was a team effort i recruited some of the contributors i put an announcement out some of those contributors uh, that you see in the book responded. There were people who contributed to the Yankees anthology that I, that I edited. So we had a really good mix. And I think that this will surprise even a diehard Mets fan. I, I was talking about this with Sam earlier today. There literally is a surprise on every page. Shea Stadium rock concerts, Mets in the 19th century, Uh, The marketing of the team in 62, Joan Payson and her philanthropy, the swagger of the 1986 Mets in particular. I wrote about the Mets and the Yankees and the West Wing and how one character resembles the Yankees persona and another the Mets persona. So I'm sure we'll get into most, if not all of these, but it really was a team effort and and the disciplines were varied. We had attorneys, we had uh you know baseball historians, we had people who are academics, and it really was a diverse offering in terms of what we have
1: incredibly diverse to use your word uh, very enjoyable uh and again, I certainly learned something so ill I'll, I'll vouch for that. Uh, in the meantime, you know, over the last two weeks, we've tried light in the hot stove. It's on, but it's far from glowing orange. Things are a little bit slow as we can understand in the pandemic, everything's going to be weird, strange, and unusual. Uh, that being said, please take a moment out. Let's catch, uh, you up to what we've already spoken to, uh, which was the upcoming off season and, uh, what ideas you might have. Uh, we have two items of note, uh, It seems Mets have turned their attentions to Mike Chernoff. And, of course, we have the Robinson Cano news. Uh, So, first, you know, again, this is an opportunity for you to catch up. Please, your opinions on the Steve Cohen purchase and, uh, again, the offseason to come.
3: Well, the Steve Cohen purchase has ignited this fan base, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1962 season and maybe 1970 opening day when the Mets returned as world champions. I I mean, you see the Mm -hmm. Twitter sphere, you see what's going on on the blogs on WFAN radio on uh, MLB network. Uh, This is just incredible. I've never seen anything like this with any new owner of any team in any sport. Uh, We are excited. We are optimistic. I haven't, used that word in a long time talking about the Mets. And I don't think fans have used that word in a long time. So this really does feel like a new era, not some billionaire coming in from out of town who, God bless him or her, wants to buy a sports team because it would be a cool thing to do. He, Steve Cohen is a fan. He's a genuine Mets fan. And you see that. He's responding to fans on Twitter when, when, when do owners respond to fans on twitter i mean this is really a refreshing moment for mets fans regarding robinson cano I, this is uh, not a good day this is not a good day when a player tests positive and they feel that they have to go that route to compete what they'll do with the 24 million plus i just learned that there's 4 million additional coming from the mariners that would have gone to Cano. It's now going to the Mets, so they'll have to decide how to use that money and fill Robbie's place at least for 2021. Um, and what was the the other thing you asked about?
1: Mike Chernoff is uh, topical. Oh, Chernoff.
3: Well, that that as you guys have probably talked about off the air, that's a bit of a sticky wicket because his dad is a an executive at WFAN, so there are. Uh, there, there's a lot of speculation on Twitter and on blogs about what that would mean. Would the fan give preferential treatment to the Mets? Would, um, would, they, only, would they favor Mets players coming on rather than Yankees players in terms of coming on the air? So I, I don't know. That's, a, that's kind of up in the air. And I'm sure there are other people being talked about and, and assessed for that job besides Mr. Chernoff.
1: Quick question. Do you suspect there's any kind of language in the contracts referring to a second suspension for Robinson Cano?
3: In the, you mean in the player's agreement?
1: Yeah. Or, or, you know, in the fine print, I'm just. Oh gosh. Well, that I, we I, yeah, I don't have
3: the, I mean, I don't have the agreement in front of me, but they all have to toe the same line. Um, I I I would like to know how this came about. Did they suspect him? Was this part of a random test? How is this implemented? So I, I couldn't speculate on that, Mike.
1: I was just wondering. That was something off the top of my head. So, Sam, uh, again, Mike Turnoff <laughs> is topical, and that's problematic because, as David says, of WFAN, uh, Robinson Cano's second suspension. This one for a full season. What say you?
2: Well, the Cano thing, weirdly enough, is a blessing in disguise. I mean, it really is – it's bittersweet, of course, because I really like watching Robinson Cano play baseball. Um, When he's going right, he looks great. And, you know, it's it's now 2020. And Robinson Cano has been in the league for at least 15 seasons, I think, I believe, at this point. And so he has been – you know, basically part of the era where there was the enlightenment when it comes to steroids, uh, steroid use, uh, the enlightenment in terms of the public. Um, and so, regard, and, 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 and I think what makes, what hurts even more with these types of players is that when watching them, you know they're good at baseball. You know, you know they're good at baseball. Alex Rodriguez is good at baseball. Roger Clemens is good at baseball. Barry Bonds is good at baseball. Most of these people, who end up, you know, becoming superhuman, if you will, and Robinson, Robinson Cano maybe not have been superhuman. Maybe it elevated him to the level it was. But uh, you know, I, I think there's always nuance. There's always a gray area to talk about, um, and. It's, you know, specifically with the Robinson Cano thing, um, it, it, it sucks that, I, you know, he probably wouldn't have made the Hall of Fame, but it would have been really cool had he actually been getting it together and gotten the 3,000 hits as the New York Mets. Uh, but it's not going to happen, most likely. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we've seen the last of Robinson Cano completely. Uh, the Mets are probably going to release him for the remainder of the contract. Steve Cohen is going to eat that contract, my guess is, especially when you think about Sandy Alderson, uh, considering that he ate some contracts early in his Mets career, that he wouldn't hesitate to do something like that, especially when looking at the former uh, uh, regime and thinking about the way the Robinson Cano thing went down in the first place. So it's, it's unfortunate it's terrible, but, uh, you know, onward and upward. In terms of the Cher- Chernoff thing, I don't, I don't know whether – I mean, th- they have the Yankees made specifically on WFAN right now. That thing has been flipping and flopping between uh, the Mets and the Yankees for the last few years, and now they kind of went half with WCBS back in the, the fray. So I, I, I think that I, I, I'm going to – Uh, uh, think that these guys are professionals because they've done a great job up until this point. Generally speaking, I think they're loose. I think they're fresh. Uh, They stay relevant WFAN. And I I think they know what the New York sports fan wants. And that doesn't just mean the Mets uh, just, you know, just because the executive, uh, the executive's father is big uh, with Westwood one or whatever. I, I forget it. I, I wish I knew exactly what – I forget what the father's name is, but I've heard the name Chernoff before, so when you said something, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't foresee that being an issue. I think that if he's the best man for the job, that's going to be the reason that he gets it. Uh, and, and WFAN specifically, on their end, I think is going to do what it takes to make sure – they are getting the attention of the New York sports fan over
1: ESPN. <laughs> you say getting the attention of the New York sports fan. Here we are, November nineteenth, and uh, not much, not much happening on the hot stove. That's uh, 2020. Uh, that's all I can say. You say if Cano, the situation sucks. Well, if 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 nothing else, it proves that people are still using first and foremost. Uh, otherwise, I won't miss him. I think it's great, Sam, and uh, it opens up second base for younger talent. We know who they are. Uh, That's where my mind is, and as far as a buyout, you know, that remains to be seen. Uh, So we'll see. Uh, Folks listening out there, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to call at 646-787-1919. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions or react to any comments you might have. So let us delve into, Mr. Crell, your work, New York Mets and Pop Culture, Critical Essays. Uh, Again, a a wonderful read, so varied. Uh, And again, uh, I learned something, if not two or three things. Let us start. I'd be remiss if we didn't start with Mrs. Joan Payson, uh, the matriarch, the grand dame of the New York Metropolitans Baseball Club. Right. Uh, We've been clamoring on this podcast for a long time for a statue. We might be getting closer to that. Uh, But it starts with her. Uh, David, you can take this any which way you can. I will just start by saying that once the Dodgers and the Giants moved and the threat of the Continental League came around, I don't think – they would have been able to proceed forward to the point that they did without the clout, the financial clout provided by Mrs. Joan Pace.
3: I think that's right. And she also had a passion. She was a true fan. She was a true fan. She kibitzed with the managers before the game. She was responsible for bringing Willie Mays back to New York in 1972. She was an A true philanthropist, uh, as Leslie Heafy points out in her essay. She is one of the biggest or was one of the biggest art collectors in the world. Um, Certainly, she was known in art circles in the museums in New York and uh, helped fund hospitals in the New York area. So her family was part of the Whitney family. Uh, The Whitney family, you've heard of the Whitney Museum. That's her family, uh, Payne Whitney, which is a ward at New York Presbyterian Hospital. That's named after a relative. So you have this tremendously generous woman, well-known in society circles in Manhattan and elsewhere, and she goes to the ballpark, not in some luxury box, but she sits behind home plate. You know, she sits in her box seat behind home, behind the dugout, rather. And it, it's really something to read her bio and to track it and to see the effects later on that the the Mets loved, the Mets fans loved the team, but so did the owner. And I think we're seeing that now. I think we're seeing echoes of that now with Mr. Cohen and his wife, Alex. This is such a a special time. And it's so familiar if you talk to fans who were around in, in the early sixties and knew about Joan Payson or maybe even players who who knew her there's something very similar about it there's just a feeling that i get that it it's almost parallel
1: a native new yorker she is and you know like you say she was she was an ordinary person for all her wealth and 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 stature uh right she was the horses uh and she in 1950, in your book, it says she purchased her first share of stock in the New York Giants baseball club, uh, and she grew to own 10% of the team. And she actually made buy the Giants. No, yeah, she, she, she didn't Why want she them to them?
3: move to, to San Francisco. So when, when that happened, and then the Continental League was formed and never got off the ground, but from the Continental League came four expansion teams, including the Mets, she was a natural fit for the New York franchise. Who better? Who better
2: to own that franchise? Sam? Sam? I mean, that was always part of the legend, too, was the fact that she was the sole uh, dissenting vote on the vote to go to San Francisco on the New York Giants board. Um, and everything that I've I've read about her, uh, there's no reason considering that she brought the national league back to New York. And here's, here is where the patriarchy is a real thing that people cannot deny. If somebody like Joan Payson is not in the hall of fame and has not had a proper campaign,
3: really. exactly,
2: And I guess that's where we come in.
3: Gentlemen. Exactly.
2: Uh, as, as many other people shouldn't, as Cohen should. Now, when I think about the statue part, Mike and David, I wonder whether part of the folly of the Wilpons was designing a ballpark and surrounding area in the ballpark to not have statues, which means that it's going to be like, you know, they were like, yeah, I guess we got to get this Tom Seaver statue. It's probably going to be near the apple or whatever. Uh, but when you really think about the way City Field is laid out, can you right now off the top of your head figure out exactly where four or five statues could go other than the Tom Seaver statue? It's difficult.
3: That's that's up to architects to redevelop it. You have to bring bring
2: in a team to redevelop. And I keep saying go to Sunnyside Yards, but I understand that is big time, and it's probably going to be hard, especially post-COVID. To be convincing, uh, not only a public but an entire city planning uh, to to give money for another ballpark. Uh, right. But Steve Cohen, as we've talked about, is the richest owner, arguably. The, right. I, not arguably, I think that this this league has ever seen. Uh, well, so here- you never know. Considering how much of an imprint city field is of the Pond folly. I'm Mike. Mike, I, and, and I know I'm going a little bit of a tangent, but I think this is the big disconnect between. Uh what we're talking about with Steve Cohen, uh what the Will Ponds were and what Joan Payson was. Uh what we you know, what we hope Steve Cohen can be, but he's really done a great job in this modern vernacular of being the owner that the fans want. And like you said, David, talking to the fans. Mike, once upon a time, and it might have been the first time that we ever sat in City Field together, you pointed at the way the stairs work. <laughs> and that they were, they, they, there was no pattern to them. Uh, now, I think somebody else, like, tried to, to counter that by saying, oh, it has to do with the way uh, – it might have had to do with, like, you know, certain food vendors right there, having to block the wind, yada, yada. Uh, but you, you – because of how they didn't open properly, you pointed out as many flaws as you could, and that's the problem. Uh, when, when there are so many things wrong right off the face, is that you're going to be that much pickier. Uh, Joan Payson didn't allow for that. And unfortunately, there wasn't the same feeling in her family afterwards uh, as in Joan Payson, uh, and it just didn't work out. And we, we got to the level of, of ownership and the, the history of it uh, that led us to Steve Collins.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, city field was poorly conceived uh, since the drawing board. It really was. Uh, it was just a huge mistake. What more can you say? Uh, can there cor- can corrections be made? Yeah, sure. But as David says, you need to bring in an architect and get this done, right? A lot of mistakes in that place. Uh, that still just make the hairs on the back of my neck stand. Uh, Getting back to Joan Payson, it's it's incredible to me, if not ponderous, that she is not in the Hall of Fame. The first woman to invest her own money into a Major League Baseball team. Uh, Not in the Hall of Fame. Ponderous to me. David.
3: Well, that's why I was so glad to have a chapter about her in the book. We are really underscoring 2020 as the year of the woman, largely because of Kamala Harris uh, becoming the next vice president of the United States. And when I talk to people about women in sports, the talk always comes around to, uh, we have the first female general manager this week, uh, women broadcasters. When will women really be populating the booths? In broadcasting and being play-by-play broadcasters. Uh, that's coming. It's not coming as fast as it should, but that day is coming where we'll have more and more women calling the games. And then I'll invariably say, hey, what about the owners? Oh, women were owners? Well, the only woman who's in the Hall of Fame is Effa Manley, who co-owned the great Newark Eagles ball club of the Negro Leagues. And you're right, Joan Payson should be in the Hall of Fame. And then I'll explain to people, about Joan Payson and some of the other female owners, but she's probably the most prominent one, I would think, and she does deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. So we need to keep this conversation going. We need to keep the history going when you have people like Joan Payson who are left out for reasons passing understanding. And she's been gone a long time now. She's been gone 45 years. It's way overdue. It's way overdue. She belongs on a plaque, in that in that wall when you go into the uh into the the hall of fame. She belongs there.
1: And that hall of fame needs to be a lot bigger. Uh a lot more a lot more things need to be in there that just this previous ownership just completely overlooked. Now Casey Stengel is the first manager of right. Chapter's devoted gentleman. The old the old professor as The they old call professor him. now there was The old professor. Now, there was no denying Mrs. Payson when she requested that he serve as manager. Uh, And he was the main pitchman. Let's be honest about that. Now, I have a question about his legacy. Because it's been written, you know, and not that I agree with it, but did managing the Mets hurt slash tarnish his legacy or did it enhance it? Because they were the lovable Mets, and probably no one else could have pulled off what he accomplished through personality and charm, what they could not accomplish on the field.
3: Oh, I think it enhanced it. He was in the media every day. He was hired, not primarily, but certainly significantly for his marquee value. He had managed the Brooklyn Ball Club way back in the 30s. He had managed great Yankee teams of the late 40s and the 50s, and he's the one who's credited with calling them the amazing Mets. You, there's that, that film clip of him saying amazing, 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 and he goes on and on and on, and now in copy and headlines, we call them the Amazons. You'll see on a sports cast, the Amazons took Cincinnati 12-10 to 10 today, that's his legacy. And he was only what he's manager for what? Three and a half years. I think that's a great legacy. And we, and we're talking about him. So obviously there's a great affection for him launching
1: the ball club. Sam, not mama, not Dada, Metsy, (laughs) Metsy, (laughs) Metsy.
2: When you really think about it, Casey Stengel is the Mets in popular culture incarnate. He, he is the birth, of Mets and pop culture. Um every what you just said, Metsy, 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 that the and and David, you said it exactly. He was in the media every day with oh, yeah. the Mets on his on his chest. And, and not from right the time the media, he retired
3: But not only in the media stamp but also in advertising. He was in the Rheingold ads with Miss Reingold. Right, right. So they exactly. positioned him perfectly he had the personality, he had the look, he had the, the persona, and to pair him with Miss Reingold was just a real comical pairing in these different print ads that went out uh, to promote the beer and to promote the games.
2: And Mike,
1: and that's where-
2: single is a big reason why the Mets were sometimes out selling the Yankees year to year.
1: Oh yeah, most definitely. Uh don't forget, you know, after what sixty four the Yankees took a precipitous fall. Uh mm-hmm. and then yeah. and then they led into the, the horse uh the horse grant years, you know. So uh there was a time where, yeah, for a while, uh certainly you could say it about the, the latter half of the sixties, the seventies, and through the eighties, the Mets this was a national league town again. I'm not going to say they yeah. dominated the town. Uh, that almost slipped out of my mouth. But but the, they did. The, the sense the sense and the feeling that this was a National League town again pervaded the streets of New York City. I will say that with Mike, great they certainty. Did, they did
3: dominate. Mike, they did dominate. Yeah, you the know, town I just didn't the want, the want to 80s. take it that
1: far. I'm just trying to be fair. Well, <laughs> How-
3: Howie Rose said it. Howie Rose has yeah. said it in interviews that this was a Mets town in the 80s, especially in the mid-80s, not so much the what?
1: early 80s. 80s most definitely, but I, I would certainly venture to say that in the 60s, latter latter half of the 60s for sure. Right. And, you know, the first half of the 70s, after that 73 National League title, this was still a Mets town. Then, of course, you had right. the Yankees in 76 and back-to-back titles 77 and 78, and then again in '81, and they had that little dynasty going. Uh, but it wasn't until the trade of Tom Seaver and and and, and uh, again we m- will mention the passing of Joan Pace in the Lorinda DiRile years, and ultimately the handing over the organization to what we thought then as the saviors of this organization, the Double Days and and, and the Wilpons. But right, let us Gress, you transitioned, and that's where we're going to go. Uh, Rheingold uh, right. a fascinating chapter in the book not only because they were the first major sponsor of the club you know you, you paint paint that mental image of the polo grounds in your minds that extensive well, center field and, and the bleachers to the left and to the right and the clubhouse right. dead center field and then above that the giant Rheingold sign uh, you know oh. <laughs> as far as media goes and, and And advertising a work of art. (laughs) But it's a fascinating history into immigration, the beer industry, and things of that nature. It's not just baseball. Even though, as you say, it's part of the popular culture. Fascinating, David.
3: Well, this is a perfect example of recruiting people into a baseball project that aren't necessarily connected to baseball. I wanted to have a chapter either about Schaefer or Reingold and I found that the New York Historical Society had done an exhibit a few years prior and I contacted the curator of the exhibit, uh, this beer exhibit where Reingold was prominently featured, and I asked her to write about the history of the the, the beer and the association with the Mets. This is a historian. This is a curator. Nothing to do with baseball per se, but it does have something to do with baseball because it was the first beer sponsor. I think it would be neat for readers to understand you know, get a synopsis of the history of how New York was a brewery city. We don't think of New York as synonymous with beer. We think of Milwaukee as synonymous with beer. But 170 years ago, this city was synonymous with here and Al, and a lot of German Jewish immigrants coming over and establishing their businesses here, establishing what they learned in Germany, Bavaria, etc. I was really glad that Deborah Bach took this challenge on and I learned a tremendous amount reading her very detailed summary of the Rheingold operation. And how big it really was. I had no idea how prominent it was. I, I Budweiser is huge. Schaefer, I, you know, from the 70s. That's what I know. Uh, you know, from being the, the the sponsor of the of the broadcasts. I knew a little bit about Reingold, but I, it was it was a true education
1: to read her chapter. And Sam, we know from you know all our delving into the Brooklyn Dodgers history, the Schaefer and the Beer uh sponsorships were huge. They played a major role in, in organizations uh finances. And speaking of Brooklyn, you know, I will I will take this to my grave and say that prohibition and David, as you say the beer industry here in, in New York City, uh particularly here in Brooklyn, prohibition and the closing of the Brooklyn Navy Yard devastated yeah. this borough. Sam, you want to pick yeah. up?
2: I, well, you know, when I when I'm looking at these advertisements right now. Um, and you're saying that this is the Rheingold wife. Uh,
3: Miss Rheingold, if it's what you're if I Miss if Rheingold. you're looking at yep. what I
2: think you're looking Rheingold at. Extra, Rheingold extra Rhinegold extra dry lager beer. Follow the met right. on radio and TV. Today's game. <laughs> and, and what's funny is that there's a 1963 one. And unfortunately, another team that's being blacked out is leading four to nothing in the ninth inning with Kate right. Stengel winking right next to Miss Ryan Gold.
1: Love right, her exactly.
2: love his Mets. Uh, I think nothing really uh, uh, sums it up better. And, and they have a picture of what will be. This is they're saying this is a 1963 advertisement, and they have a picture on the follow the Mets on radio TV advertisement of Shea Stadium, and it must be a rendering. But it's pretty remarkable that they still, in this, whatever this is, maybe it was literally a moment in time. Uh, but it's funny to me that the Mets are losing 4 to nothing, 1963 three nine. <laughs> Very
1: quickly, you know, for all you beer aficionados out there, a lager, which is what Ryan Gold specialized in, this is a light, crispy uh beer as opposed to your ales which I'm a fan of I'm not such a big fan of the lagers any what what, what say you guys David
2: well okay oh, can I, I can I just I, throw, I, throw I, can I, just I throw, I, throw I, it I, out there can I just throw <laughs> it out there though that maybe Steve Cohen right now is having a Rhinegold uh because he is 8 minutes ago tweeting to somebody about Bobby Mania who asked him whether they can pay out the entire uh, uh, 18 million or whatever we owe Bobby Mania instead of having the celebration every year that we pay him out, and Steve yeah. Cohen said, "How about I got a better idea? How about we have a celebration on Bobby Mania Day? We have him on a float, take a lap around the park, uh, and we do it for seven years or so something like that." I, I'm the the feed uh, uh, uh it updated already. I'm trying to go back and find that, but. Um, I just needed to throw that out there, tangent. Maybe he's having a Ryan Gold uh, because he's he's the best right now in the modern vernacular, interacting with the fans.
1: You got a preference,
2: David?
3: No. What what I was thinking of, and I I know you guys want to talk perhaps about the chapter on 1970s pitchers, and when I remember the 70s the Schaefer ad, which is so politically incorrect now in 2020, but in the 70s where basically it was a free-for-all, the tagline was Schaefer beer, the only beer to have when you're having more than one.
1: And that's just yeah, and that was so politically
3: catchy, incorrect.
1: That was such a catchy jingle. I was singing exactly. singing it as a kid. I guess that demonstrates yeah. how dangerous that was back then. Oh, uh, yeah. But you oh. speak I, I wasn't going to go here, but you speak of, you know, politically incorrect. And let's go back to Reingold for a second. And some of those commercials from the 1960s and the ethnic flavor that they presented, yeah. Chinese, Puerto Rican, Italians, yeah. et cetera, yeah. can pick pick up on that. Yeah, I,
3: I mean, you could go across any industry that advertised on television. At that time, uh, you can certainly go through movies and how things were portrayed, cartoons and how certain ethnicities were portrayed. Um, you know, into the seventies, and the you know, cultures have changed. You know, we've changed well, as a society. 70. We've become we've become more diverse. We've become more inclusive. We still have some work to do, obviously, but we're we're moving forward, I think. And and one of the ways that you, we do this, and not to sound a little you know, over-romantic about baseball, but baseball is a universal language. Baseball connects Indeed. everybody. I think this book proves it. We have a, a chapter about the Mets and hip-hop by Jermaine King. And when Jermaine pitched this idea to me, we had a mutual friend, someone who contributed to the Yankees in popular culture anthology, and I said, wait a minute, not not the Mets, the Yankees. He said, why do you say that? I said, Jay-Z, he's always wearing the Yankees hat. He said, David, I am going to show you that the Mets not only have as much a claim on hip-hop as the Yankees, they might even have more of a claim. They might have a bigger claim to a connection to hip-hop, and he did. And he did. So I, I, I'm really enthusiastic about the, the diversity of offerings and how much education I received in going through them. Because I had no idea about the history of Rheingold. I didn't know about the Mets and hip-hop. I didn't know about Shea Stadium's rock concerts. I knew the Beatles. And I went to a mm-hmm. Springsteen concert. I, I didn't know it was so iconic for these rock bands to go there. So, and and when you were talking before about um, you know the, the 1980s and the Mets being in making the the city theirs. Remember in the 70s when Reggie came to town for the Yankees, when you drove into the Lincoln Tunnel, there was that big Panasonic advertisement, and I think it was was it called Panavision, um, or it was like a, a, a VCR. At one point, or the camera, whatever it was, it was Reggie Jackson on the Helix, you know that big billboard. But in the 80s, when you went through the tunnel, the first thing you see when you come out is a big, fantastic mural of Doc Gooden, just as he's about to release the the ball. And I think that's what that that's really the definitive point of 1980s Mets popular culture for me i mean you mentioned casey stengel in the beginning but that mural really solidified the mets as a new york town when you have thousands of people coming in commuting every day and that's the first thing that they see that's a wonderful thing for a mets fan
1: the mets in the 80s hip-hop uh and their imprint in movies and TV, that's a, a, a grand subject right there. We're going to hold off for yeah. just a second because there's so much to cover there. Let's rewind a second. Uh, Sam, okay. you had said that you know Casey Stengel was the first icon of this organization. Well, let me present to you the second. Mr. Met, born in 1964, a Hall of Famer, I might add, and the first Major League Baseball mascot. We didn't know it then, but we certainly know it now there's probably no more iconic figure in the Mets organization than Mr. Met. And I say that with a big smile, Sam.
2: You know, I have to say that the paper mache Mr. Met is like looking back on it right now, is kind of spooky and kind of weird looking, but I, I I have heard that not only is, uh, was he the first baseball mascot, but he was also, well, I guess other than the bum and the clown as the bum, because, uh, you know, it, it had come up, but, like, in terms of, like, uh, a disnified mascot, I believe he right. was the first. And I believe that he was also the first in sports in general. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't even think there was a college reference prior to him. Uh, and you can kind of tell when you go into the Hall of Fame and see that original Mr. Met, And you see how it was kind of just thrown together, how it was odd that nobody had ever thought of this, but then all of a sudden here's somebody thinking of it. And, uh, you know, you can argue who's the best mascot, but what we can argue, what you can argue, is Mr. Met's uh, never-ending optimism. doesn't matter what's going on on the field. Even when he's shaking his head at it, he's smiling. And that's the thing I love about Mr. Met, that is one of the things that I love about, uh, um, uh, about his place in pop culture too. And he's shown up. We, you know, we could talk about the places that he's shown up for one, one of the modern uh, places that I, I can remember him from, uh, is randomly in an episode of 30 rock, uh, Tina Fey show 30 rock. Uh, if, you guys out there have not seen it. You should all check it out. Uh, but Mr. Met jo- does show up. Um, and I think he might even show up like twice or three times even. So uh, people like Mr. Met, even people from Philadelphia like Tina Fey, who does get the Philly Fanatic in there from time to time, which is a whole nother discussion about how original the, the Philly Fanatic is. Uh, but separate from that, somebody who would – Generally lean Philly fanatic still had the Mets in her show about two to three times.
1: He had a big smile on his face when he flipped uh, flipped the bird to those fans that time. Uh, but David, to keep this in context, <laughs> Mister Met has become Mister Met has become a, a big TV star. As Sam mentioned, yes. he, he popped on that show with Tina Fey. He's on ESPN commercials and the, the commercial with uh, the Philly fanatic.
3: Right. Th- this is all covered in the essay that was written by a very good friend of mine, Marty Lessner. Marty and I were classmates at Villanova Law School, and Marty's a huge baseball fan and a lifelong Delawarean, which makes him a Phillies fan. And he really couched that Met, Mr. Met Philly fanatic rivalry in, uh, in really humorous and, and factual terms, not not going off on some, you know, who's better, who's funnier type of thing. But these little anecdotes, uh, there was a sketch on Conan O'Brien, uh, the Mr. Met, in the e- this is ESPN commercial where he gets angry at Josh Hamilton. Uh, Mr. Met with the new Odd Couple uh, series that was with um, Matthew Perry and Thomas Lennon uh, may- making an appearance in Madam Secretary. So Mr. Met has become a a star in his own right recently more than ever before. And can and now I, we uh, move Mike, on.
2: before you jump yeah. in, Mike, before you jump in, I just want to say that I think it's the design. When they brought him back, and I forget exactly whether 1997 was the first year. I know he had that exchange with uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, but but sometime in the 90s, they brought Mr. Met back. And the the the... It, it, the Design, generally speaking, the design they came up with in the 90s is still the design they use today. And I think that's a big reason why it has stuck with so many people.
1: I love him. Uh, <laughs> that's all I can say. I love Mr. Met. I got a picture of me and Mr. Met hanging on my wall, looking at it right now. Uh, but let us uh, fast forward a little bit to the 1970s now. Uh, David, you have a, a chapter devoted to what were outstanding pictures. And again, this is an era that I alluded to that the Mets still own New York city from right. 70 to right through uh, June of 1977 pitching on this side of the city in Flushing was just outstanding. I'll mention right. the names and then we'll delve into some of the, uh, you know, the details and characteristics of these gentlemen, but you know, we have obviously Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman, Nolan Ryan, Tug McGraw and John Matlock. Let us start with John Matlock. If you don't mind, because I think he's sure. the most underrated of the bunch. Uh, he did some pretty prolific things with the Mets that you pointed out in your book.
3: Well, that that was written by Douglas Jordan and Scott Dowdy, and they came up with this really novel approach of analyzing them as if they were underrated, which they were by the time I finished the chapter. I said, yeah, how come I don't hear <clears throat> excuse me, how come I don't hear more about Matlack and Kuzman? How come I don't hear more about Seaver compared to Gibson or Drysdale? It was a, a real eye-opener to see it that way. And Nolan Ryan with all due respect, he was not Nolan Ryan when he played for the Mets. I mean, he, when he got to the angels, that's when he just exploded. Um, We did not get the benefit of that. And obviously we all wish that he would have stayed in New York. God knows how how many championships the Mets would have won in the seventies had he stayed. And when he became that pitcher, it was What was the record, 383 strikeouts or something like that? I mean, geez, can you imagine playing in a league which didn't have the DH? Can you imagine how many strikeouts he might have had? So Matlack, yeah, I mean, Matlack is in a, a book that I had as a kid by a, an author, a sports journalist named, I think it's Don delaquanti, and it was all the future stars of baseball. And Matlack was you know up there rookie of the year in 1972 he you know he's underrated in terms of his record the record doesn't reflect the greatness that he had and that he could have become you know he could have become one of those legendary pitchers but he he wasn't with the Mets his whole career he's identified in that early 70s pantheon as you said and Gosh, you know, more run support maybe uh, if the Mets' offense was better in the, in the mid-'70s. There was a tapering-off period after 73. I, I think he's great. I think Kuzman we still kind of don't pay attention to. I, I, I don't know why. People in 69, people who were there, will tell you he was the World Series hero. He won two games. Well, that's great, but he's more than just one season. And I think they're going to retire his number, if I'm not mistaken, sometime next year. There's this rule about not retiring numbers unless they're inducted into the Hall of Fame. But it seems that there's, there's some flexibility there.
1: Indeed. Uh, Tug McGraw. I'll put it out there. He's one of my all-time favorites. He's in my top yeah. three. Uh, and because he won two National League championships here in a World Series and right. unfortunately he passed away uh, yeah. his health failed him i think and i know this is uh, a a wide ranging debate because fans have so many people that they want this to happen with their uniform number but i would want the mets to retire tugo gross number i think he's deserving because of what i just said to nationally yeah. and you have to keep it you have to keep it within the context of the team's achievements And he's been a prominent fixture in two National League championships in the World Series. That being said, Sam, I I know you don't remember Tug McGraw in his heyday. uh, And, you know, he has a body of work with the Phillies, whom they, you know, are very proud of as well. But Tug McGraw, pick it up. What do you know of him?
2: If, If you're, you know, home on any random Saturday when there is a Mets yearbook marathon, Uh, and I'm not sure how often that happens anymore because I I don't have S&Y around as much, but you immediately think of him slapping his glove on his leg uh, as he goes in to shake his hands with the catcher. I think that I'm not sure whether his number has been retired on the Philadelphia side of things, and his legacy is rather well and I don't think with any animosity, you know, between either fan bases, well split between the two franchises, um, which is so interesting for the rivalry in and of itself. Uh, but Tug McGraw, I think still more so with the Mets and the Philadelphia Phillies, deserves to get his number retired. Uh, and let's all, for all of you out there, just in case, um, that is number 45. So that would, you know, Zach Wheeler's worn that, Pedro Martinez has worn that, um, which I think if there's ever anybody deserving of wearing a number 45 in that history, other than Tug McGraw, uh, no offense to Zach Wheeler. Sure, I I think that he should have stayed. That's a whole nother discussion. And ironically, now he's with the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, But Pedro Martinez would be that number 45. But Tug McGraw... I would rather appreciate Mets players, you know, knowing that they can't wear number 45. That That is what comes with those retired numbers, is that the players know your name because, oh, uh, yeah, you can't wear that because it was worn by Tug McGraw. So, yeah, I would agree with that, uh, with Tug McGraw. Um, take it away, Mike.
1: David, I want you to comment on Tug McGraw, only because, again, he's one of my favorites. But, you know, I want to step right. this back a little bit and talk about the whole staff and this pitching staff of the 70s. Is it right. me, or did 1976 give more people a false sense of security than just what I've created in my own mind? Because we still had Seaver, Kuzman, uh, Nino Espinosa, and, you know, obviously others. And then there's, there's you know, I first... I'll let you comment about that, because I have second part.
3: Well, Scott and Doug make the point that in 1973, McGraw's ERA was almost 4.0. He had a 3.87 ERA, but it was that intangible, that leadership quality that really elevated him, not just among the fans, but among the team. And Keith Hernandez uses the term a good clubhouse guy when he's referencing people. Um, and I think Tug McGraw would fit into that paradigm. He was the guy keeping everyone motivated. He was the guy who, after Mr. Grant said, you have to believe in yourselves. Tug McGraw said, you got to believe, you got to believe. And we, we hear that today. And when I, when I think about Tug and pop culture, I come back to that episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. Where Raymond tries to get to the head of the line with his brother Robert, uh, and he tries to pull the newsday credential, uh, and, and Tug McGraw remembers him. They're they're there for, they're at the Hall of Fame for a 1969 World Series reunion. So you see Ed Cranepool and and uh, Art Shamsky and Cleon Jones and um, and all these Tommy Agee, and there's this big line, and Ray wants to get to the front, and he's and he's kind of you know. Trying to get Tug McGraw's attention, and Tug McGraw says, "Yeah, you're the guy who wrote all those bad things about me." And he got, and Tug McGraw got a big laugh. He was a performer, you know. When I was in law school at Villanova, he was doing the sports report, I think, on WPVI. So he was a natural. He was a natural personality for the game. Whereas, if you have someone like Nolan Ryan, I mean, geez, if you watch that that uh, episode of the Ed Sullivan Show where they're singing "You Got to Have Heart," Nolan Ryan looks like. That's the last place he wants to be, is on that stage at the at Sullivan Theater. So it was a good mix of, of people. And you, you were asking about 76. Well, Tug was gone to Philadelphia by that point. So we lost a little personality. We lost a little oomph. We lost a little uh, you know, X factor when, when he went. And by little, I mean a lot. He was a fan favorite.
0: Absolutely. And I think Philly fans will say the same heart.
3: thing. I, I I think in Philly they'll tell you the same exact thing. It's kind of a Reggie Jackson dichotomy. Whereas Oakland fans have just as much a claim on Reggie as Yankee fans. Same thing with Tug. Philly fans remember him fondly. They remember him uh, from the uh, you know 1980, um, you know where where he's just erupting and and you know when they win, when the Phillies win. Uh, the world series. And it's, you know, it, it was a terrific loss, but that's baseball. You know, people change teams, uh, uh, people get traded. We know that from Mr. Seaver. We hope that doesn't happen with Mr. Syndergaard or Mr. DeGrom, but it's part of baseball.
1: That was a, a great comparison, Reggie and McGraw, uh, with two different fan bases claiming, you know, allegiance, Sam, uh, Jerry Kuzman, it was so unfortunate. He wins 20 games and then loses 20 games. He loses a Cy Young, we feel, to yeah. Randy Jones, and Tom Seaver loses out on a Cy Young, we believe, to Ferguson Jenkins. Yes. What say you?
3: Well, Kuzman is one of those argument starters if when you talk about people who should be considered f- for the Hall of Fame but aren't. Um, I, I put him in that category with Louis Tion because their records are roughly the same, and he's a he's a hero to the city, obviously to the city's baseball fans because of his performance in in '69. But if you can't get the run support, you you could be the best pitcher in baseball. I mean, I'm looking at his um, baseball reference page right now, and he went 21 and 10 in 1976. Didn't Get to the top of the division in 1976. Yeah, you know they finished. They finished third, which is respectable. But you, you have to win 96 games to win the division, not 86 games. And for whatever reason, they they did not have the the magic that they had. Now, I can't. I, I you know I, I'm not a saber statistics guy, so I can't point to you know the numbers so much. But I will tell you that I was at the Hopster University 50th Anniversary Conference in 2012, and there was a panel of Ed Cranepole, sure. Bud Harrelson, and I believe Art Shamsky. And if memory serves me correctly, Ed Cranepool said, if Gil Hodges hadn't died before the 1972 season, we'd have a few more World Series rings on our fingers. And that's a common... Uh, that's a common feeling among Mets players when they talk about Gil. And, and that's another one who should be in the Hall of Fame and should also have a statue at Citi Field.
1: Without a doubt. Uh, I always bring up 76 because to that point in their history, it was their second-highest-ever win total. Uh, yeah. And, and as, a, as a young kid, uh, again, I was probably misled as to what was really going on and transpiring behind the scenes. Sure. So then we move in. Yeah, so now we move into the 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we get into the swagger of that team and, and, and certain motifs that are explained in the book, uh, the Mets' role in movies uh, becomes yeah. rather prominent. And Sam, you know, you, you're the movie guy in, in this podcast operation. Please. That's your background, you know? That's your specialty. So, uh the iconography of the Mets and let's encompass what, you know, they've, they've been able to stamp themselves in, 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 very popular movies, but David, as it's pointed out in the book, the baseball cap itself is a recurring motif in, in a lot of these TV episodes and movies and things of that nature. And it's, it's very, it's very intriguing. Uh, and things yeah. that, as a med, and and here I am, fifty three. I would never think of. And after having read read this, I'm like, wow, it's so true. So yeah. Sam, you know, there's a bunch of movies out there, and the cap is a recurring motif.
2: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I haven't seen both Frequency and Gone Girl, but I, I, I'm that- going to pretend I didn't hear that.
3: <laughs>
2: well. I I had heard that, uh, and I believe it has to do with the fact that like somebody's trying to connect with the father and the son, or vice versa, uh, in 1969. Um, and David, right. you can speak more to this uh, in a moment. But um, you know, of course, with Odd Couple, uh, Walter Nassau wearing the hat is very prominent. Uh, that 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 was a big thing in pop culture. Uh, But especially for me, I, I think that other than, I think it was like 1988 or 1989, I was in Rockland County visiting my aunt and uncle, and I saw them watching some spring training thing on the television, and that was the first time I had seen the Mets hat as opposed to the Yankees hat. I had already known what the Yankees hat was, and I said, wait a second, that's, and NY as well, but it's a different NY with a different color, you know, as my three- or four-year-old self, whichever year it was. But other than that, Billy Crystal wearing the Mets hat is probably the next pop culture reference for my young brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what, you know, going going to that, uh, David, tell us about the way the hat has has played – uh, a role in films and why right. specifically that combination of taking the blue from the Dodgers uh, and the orange and specifically the orange and why from the Giants, right. why is that combination? And you know what, let's even throw uh, coming to America, I believe uh, has sure. a, a Mets cap or some Mets reference in that. So please take it away.
3: Well, David Pegram wrote that chapter about Gone Girl and City Slickers and the, the controversy surrounding the Mets hat in both those movies. It's a really good behind-the-scenes look at how things happen. They, they, they don't just – in other words, they don't just happen. There's a lot of thought that goes into something like a hat. Um, and with Billy Crystal and City Slickers, the reason that that was such a powerful – symbol is because Billy is a Yankees fan. He's probably the most famous Yankees fan, but he had a charity that he was involved with and the Yankees didn't donate. And the Mets made a sizable donation. And he said, as a thank you, I'm going to wear the Mets hat in my next movie. Regarding Gone Girl, there's a scene where Ben Affleck is walking through an airport. There was a Big uh, controversy that David goes into regarding the director wanting Ben to wear a, a Yankees hat and Ben Affleck and I think rightfully and appropriately so said if I wear a Yankees hat I'm a famous Red Sox fan people will not be talking about this movie they're going to be talking about the hat we want them to be talking about the movie so they made a compromise where he would wear a Mets hat, which is fine. And I I think it was an appropriate thing. If you you have the most famous Red Sox fan in the country wearing a a Yankees hat, there's no doubt that would be all over Twitter. It would alienate people on uh, the Yankees side of the fan base, on the Red Sox side of the fan base, and no one would be paying attention to the story. So that was a that's a really interesting chapter that David wrote regarding the Odd Couple. What's always interesting to me is Matthew wears it. Uh, Jack Klugman wears it in the TV show, but when they did the reunion TV movie in 1993 with Klugman and Tony Randall, Oscar is wearing a Yankees hat. I could never figure that out. I can never <laughs> figure that out. But as a Mets fan, it's kind of neat when you see <laughs> well, when you see reruns of The Odd Couple and Oscar is invariably wearing uh, a Mets cap if he's hanging around the house, if he's playing
2: softball, whatever he's doing. That's a pretty neat thing. Can I just say, too, uh, before I send it over to you, Mike, that in Seinfeld in the early years, Jerry kind of toes with both franchises. You see both. A Yankees cap and a Mets cap, and of course, famously, famously George works for the Yankees, uh, and right. the Yankees became a prominent part of Seinfeld. Ironically, for a big Mets fan, um, but uh, Mike, I'm going to send it over to you before you you take it away. Uh, that the the cap, though it was uh, he, if you remember Seinfeld, he had it prominently uh, from. I think the Yankees hat might have even been around only like one season uh but it was sitting somewhere in the apartment um mm-hmm. and it's it's funny how Jerry kind of like gave a little cred to both New York teams and and he was a full-service New York City television show.
3: Well, Larry David co-created the show and Larry David is a big Yankees fan. So that might have been one of the reasons behind that.
1: I think I also think that's uh, a very natural sentiment amongst New Yorkers. You know, we're Mets fans, but we know the Yankees are here and we're not afraid to talk about them and some might even embrace their history as a baseball fan and vice versa. I think there's that certain level of relationship going on between fans uh I don't know. I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong, but very quickly Uh, We've talked about cycles And when the Mets have dominated this town The Yankees have dominated this town If you Take a quick peek At what's going on presently With the incoming new owner Of the Mets and Steve Cohen And what's going on in the Bronx With Hal Steinbrenner The accountant The man who will not operate the Yankees The way his father did because uh, right. I don't know for how many years, but for at least five, and that's very safe, for at least five to seven years, George operated when he was operating the Yankees. He operated the Yankees at a fiscal loss. Nobody talks about yeah. that. But, you know, that was his passion to win. Uh, touche to him. Uh, but, you know, how the accountant, he doesn't have those sensibilities. Uh, he's a numbers cruncher. And you see that they've been implemented a system that isn't quite getting them over the hump and we might we might be seeing the cycle continuing to turn and this may very well you know I'm not getting ahead of myself but this may very well turn into a big Mets town again uh, just because it works in cycles and I think we're just going around the dial I'm not going to ask anybody to comment about that that's just my opinion that I felt like throwing out there <laughs> okay uh, but. Fair well, one last thing. One last thing. <laughs> uh, Gone, girl Ben Affleck made a concerted effort to push the cap, though, David.
3: Well, you know, again, when, when you're a major movie star and a director asks you to do something and you feel it's not going to be good for the movie, this is not uh, about the way to read a line or the way the scene is lit or you know, the, the the color of the shirt doesn't reflect off the light somehow. This is about just a basic, common-sense <laughs> problem, and the problem was easily solved. And it shouldn't have even been a problem. It shouldn't have halted production, but when you read David, David's essay, he takes you through the the genesis of the controversy and walks you through it, which is a really good lesson for filmmakers or film buffs that everything you see, there's always something behind, uh, you know, behind the scenes that made it happen.
1: And there was another motif that I picked on swagger. When we speak of the 1980s, that's a whole chapter devoted to the 1980s Mets. and and West Wing in particular swagger became Mm -hmm. a motif. Explain that one. Oh,
3: sure. Well, Paul Hensler had this idea to write about the 1980s Mets and talk about how they were full of swagger. That was his word. And I started thinking about the 80s, and I said, yeah, yeah, they, they were the team everyone loved to hate. They There was a an arrogance about them. There was a cockiness, a swagger. But this book is about popular culture. It's not about a team's personality. So I, I called up Paul, and I said, what else was going on in the 80s? Let's let's broaden the context. What else was going on? You had Michael Douglas saying greed is good in Wall Street. You had Donald Trump building Trump Tower and Trump Plaza in Atlantic City. You had J.R. Ewing on Dallas. You had Alexis Carrington on Dynasty. You had swagger all over primetime TV in the movies. You had the go-go years of Wall Street before the 87 crash there was a swagger going on in the culture now maybe some of that was Reagan's persona as president maybe some of it was just we were ready after you know years of double digit inflation and the hostages in Iran and I mean this country was just beat up psychologically in the late 70s so by the 80s it was you know thinking back on it there was just this, this pent-up frustration that just exploded. And if you think about it, think about this. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, is there any show that's more swaggerish than Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which is a show that would never get on the air today? Because now the culture has changed. Now it's, to, to see somebody in an $80 million mansion is somehow vulgar. Uh, that's that's what the culture seems to be saying. And I, I, me, I have no opinion. But there was a swagger that the Mets fit into very, very nicely, and they won. I mean, you can't you you it, you can't be, as Reggie Jackson would say, you, if you're cocky. Cocky is only if you can't do it. Confident is if you can do it. And and they won.
1: <laughs> exactly. They won, Sam, but they only won once. Were they a bunch of overachievers? Was that swagger uh, justified? Uh,
2: yeah, I think the swagger was justified specifically that year, 1986. Um, and I think the game that shows that swagger is justified is game six of the 1986 NLCS. As a fan, that was one years old when that happened, and one year old, excuse me, uh, it, it, you know, it's just still one of the most amazing things. It it you can really hold it up there in many ways with the miracle of Game Six in the World Series, uh, because there's no reason this team should have won that, but because of their swagger, because they were confident and not cocky. Uh, and at certain points, they were cocky. And they—that's like right after they parted, they got their ass handed to them in games one and two. And once they figured it out and had their confidence back, they were able to win that World Series. So, um, you know, and it's funny, Mike. You're talking about uh, George Steinbrenner operating uh, with a loss. He definitely had swagger. Uh, but operating at a loss, it sounds like some presidents, I know. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, Bob Murphy, David. Um, Murphy. You know, it. he it basically personified the Mets outside of Casey Stengel to the outside world at the time. Um, And I I really didn't know much of his uh, background prior to coming with the Mets, but you go into that in a great deal uh, regarding um, some of the Red Sox games and the Orioles games that he did before coming.
3: Well, that was authored by Donna Halper, who had personal memories of listening to to Bob Murphy uh, before he became a Mets announcer. And like you, I did not know about Murph's career before the Mets, I knew he was one of the original announcers with uh, Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner, so to read his bio before New York was really interesting. And it shows you the team that you, you are associating this person with isn't necessarily the team that they started with. So it, it's, I think it's an interesting exercise to see these guys and, and where they come from, just like players. You know, players might, uh, a lot of people forget Nolan Ryan played for the Mets. And he found his best years with the Angels and the Astros. So for announcers, it's, uh, you know, you have someone like Gary Cohn, who's been with one team his entire career, or Vince Scully was with the Dodgers his entire career. But Ernie Harwell was known to Tigers announcers as their voice of summer, and Ernie was, uh, was with other teams before then. And Murph doesn't get the, the respect, I think, because people talk about Vince Scully and maybe we're territorial because you know we're Mets fans, and I'm sure Dodgers fans are just as territorial about Vince Scully. But I think Murph is probably underrated as an announcer. I mean, he really was the, the glue that held us together as a fan base way after Lindsey Nelson uh, was was gone from the Mets announcing booth, and I think Ralph Kiner had started to taper off by the 90s as well.
2: And Mike, you know, uh, the thing about Bob Murphy is that he also has a Game 6 call that is much less famous uh, oh, yeah. than Vince Scully's call. Uh, however, it, it is still I, I mean, I it, it's hard because do you think it's biased? Do you think it's just the the fact that I've heard Vin Scully's call more, Mike, that I would say that Vin Scully's call is better, but I don't think you can necessarily call it better or worse. Bob Murphy was calling it for the radio. Vin Scully was calling it for television. Um, and the thing about Vin Scully's is that you have that elongated, stretch that he just watches and then he comes back with if you have seen a hundred words uh, if, if uh, uh, anyway take it away Mike you remember what I'm talking about <laughs> uh, I do but
1: you know my history Sam I didn't catch any of 86 live you know what I know I heard from re-recordings and things of that nature David, it's interesting that Bob Murphy, to me, will always, always be linked with the Mayor's Trophies game. Yeah. Don't ask me why, but every game that I listened to, because the Mayor's Trophy game was not televised, it was all Bob Murphy. Yeah. So when you're seven and eight and nine, this was a big thing. And he was the narrator before the Subway yeah. Series. Before interleague play, New York City hosted a game between the Mets and the Yankees, and they called it the Mares Trophy game. Uh, what a delight as a, as a child to listen to that game. It was special. Yeah. It was unique. Uh, so take it away, the Mares Trophies game and the history of that <laughs> contest.
3: Well, that essay was written by Matt Rothenberg, who is a former research librarian at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And Matt traced the origins of the game back to the 40s when we had the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Yankees. But I remember those games very fondly because we didn't have interleague play. So for the Mets and Yankees to play even in an exhibition game in June was a really exciting thing. And it's one of those things that got lost in interleague play when that emerged in the late 1990s. Maybe we'll get back to a point where we're just doing American League games and National League games and no crossovers. I hope that we get back to that, but I don't think that I don't think that's a realistic hope. But what about baseball is a realistic hope, I and mean, that's why we're baseball fans. We 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 hope against the odds. I think it's important that people know that the Mets and Yankees didn't always meet six times a year, that there was this charity event that had such a rich history dating back 50 years. And Murphy was the, you know, he was the guy. He was our guy in the same way Yankee fans had Phil Rizzuto and Bill White and Frank Messer back in those days.
1: And unlike TV where you got, you know, to listen to and watch to all three, it was all it was all Bob Murphy on the radio. And, you know, I had the yeah. great honor of attending one mass Trophy game in 1975 at Chase Stadium. Uh, so to that, if you want to add anything about the mass Trophy game, uh, Sam, I know uh, that was a little bit well, before your time. The last one was in 1983, <laughs> by the way. I mean, you
2: know. But, uh, I mean, if you want to compare it to Interleague go. or – well, if no. no as far back as I Italy, can go, Dave, what it was and what it is now. As far back as I can go, it's just Dave Malicki, basically. Uh, but right. you know, I think it was, <laughs> it's really cool. Uh, I what you know, I have more questions than comments, really, just because. And I'll, I'll ask you, David. So were these ever televised? I know they filmed them sometimes, in terms of just having some camera guys on to take random stuff for uh, yearbooks. Uh, what say you? I I
3: seem to remember they were, but that could be a false memory. I, I, so I can't no, say I 100%. Always,
1: I remember always having to tune in on the radio. Uh, I wasn't able to okay. find that on TV. Uh, I do remember that
3: often they were on a school day, so it didn't even matter right you know it was when, it was whenever they had an off day between the two teams
2: so you're saying david uh, that it would take place uh during um the season it wouldn't be it, a a march thing
3: no no it was it was definitely during the season and you know the players you know are, are they going to risk getting hurt are they going to risk that that's that's a realistic concern. Same thing with the All-Star game. When are we going to get back to the All-Star game being what it was intended to be, which is an exhibition? Why is some guy on a 500 team going to go all out just so his league might get home field advantage in the World Series? I mean, that's ridiculous. These guys are spent are getting paid millions of dollars a year. They shouldn't be risking... Uh, you know, a broken ankle or a broken rib in a game that really, in essence, doesn't mean anything. It's an exhibition for the fans, or at least that's what it was intended to be. And I think we need to get back to that.
1: Well said. Well said. Uh, I, I want to uh, revisit, and dude perhaps I'll apologize. I, I intended to just briefly cover this and you mentioned it, you, you covered it briefly, but I want the readers to actually purchase this book and, and read it as opposed to us exposing it here. But right. very, very briefly, the era of fitted caps, and we're going back to the Mets again of the 80s. The era of fitted caps, the Mets of the 80s, they were born in 62, so 85 and 86, they're turning 24 and 25 years old. Right. And the rise of hip-hop and rap music, and MTV mm-hmm. rap, they all grew up together separately, yeah. but they all grew up together and they, and they, and they matured in that mid eighties. And again, to right. keep this into context of pop culture, it's a very interesting uh, way to see four entities grow up in the same era together. Right.
3: Right. It, it, the hip hop, was born in the 70s, but I think it really came of age in the 80s, certainly because of what you just mentioned, MTV. Uh, Yo! MTV Raps became just this Goliath, uh, you know, in the 80s. And baseball has either shaped popular culture or popular culture has shaped baseball in some way. There's certainly crossover. Uh, You know, we talked about Jay-Z wearing the Yankees hat, Jermaine's essay on the Mets and hip-hop, so, things like Mets hats being fitted, not fitted, uh, different designs. Now you can get a, a Mets hat in any color. I mean, this is just uh, this is just another way for the teams to make money, which I have absolutely no problem with. If they want to license Mets hats or Yankees hats or Royals hats or Angels hats in you know twenty different colors, fine, go for it. You know, cre- it's creating more jobs. It's good for the game. If if people, if people, more people are wearing the merchandise, it's it's a walking advertisement for the game. And we need that.
1: Uh, the essay, I will say, I think is a brilliant when it gets into the history of hip-hop and rap music. As you say, it's the gener- the, the genesis of it all back in the 70s and whatnot. And the rivalry right. between the Bronx and Queens. Uh, that's all I'll say. Buy the book and read this. It's a fascinating history. Yeah. Uh, that brings all these children together and they all mature together in the mid eighties. Yeah. Fascinating read. Yeah. Uh, to that, I will add in 1987. And one of the names I'll reveal will be LL pool J in his album bad. That was noted in the book. I have an anecdote and perhaps you guys might want to comment in 1987. I went, uh, I spent uh, a week in St. Louis. And as you know, in 1987, St. Louis was in the playoffs. Uh, I went with a friend and he left me behind to go catch up with his girlfriend one day. And I stayed behind with his brother and hung out with him and his friends. Well, I don't, I, 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 I don't want to sign uh, sound foul, but if you remember, or if anybody does remember St. Louis used to call Met fans pond scum. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I mean, there were t-shirts made I and everything. Okay. Uh, perhaps that was a St. Louis thing. But uh, here, some people seem to remember it. Most people don't. But being in St. Louis, there were T-shirts all over all over town. Uh, Mets or pond scum. This, and there was a certain reason why, you know, that particular term was designated our way. But the point is, you know, the name of the album was bad. And that anecdote, bad. to me, when I read it, And then what I experienced in St. Louis, I put them together. I was like, wow, sign of the times, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, But again, a brilliant essay Uh, with that kind of go out of order. I'm going to hit Dave Kingman. What made him so iconic?
3: (laughs) Oh, Kong! come on. It's a 50 50 shot that he's hitting the ball over the fence. I mean, his strikeouts were mighty and his home runs were mightier. That was, that was written by Charlie Vassilero. Charlie's a good friend of mine. I saw him present on Kingman at the Hofstra Conference. And I wanted to write an essay about Kingman, but I had already committed myself to writing the West Wing essay and the essay about Sports Phone. So there was a limit. I, I had a limit of two. That was the McFarland published the book. And if you were the editor of the anthology, You could do two. Anyone could really do two, but no more. And I called up Charlie. I said, look, I'd love to have you be a part of this. You know more about Kingman than anybody, so it's yours if you want it. And he came up with the idea of positioning Kingman as a pop culture figure, as a cultural icon for Mets fans of a certain age. And I had forgotten Kingman wasn't around all that long. It was only a handful of years where where he was here. And yet he's so prevalent in my mind. He was my favorite player. We had the same initials. We had the same name. He was so big and so massive that when his home runs cleared the wall, there was no question. It wasn't like, oh, it could go out. When it hit the bat, you knew whether it was going out or not.
1: He uh, anyway, do you remember that game in Los Angeles? He hit three home runs against the Dodgers. It was a weeknight I, game. I
3: don't remember it. I had read about it, but I don't I don't remember it from you know, I, at the time it happened.
1: That was great. That was great. You mentioned sports phone, and I have this big old smile on my face right now. Uh, that takes me to another time, another place. That was that was great. Yeah. I look. I called it. <laughs> I called it. This one. This one you wrote. This is an essay you wrote, and it takes me back to a time uh, Art Russ Jr., it takes me back to the USFL, it takes me back to those kind of names and places and events. Uh, Sports phone. tell us about that.
3: Well, at the end of that essay, you'll see I put it in context with other ventures of the time that had commercials that seemed to run endlessly. Um, You know, you'll when people read it they'll you know, if you're if you grew up in the 80s if you were around in the 80s you'll see the, the these things that i mentioned will just trigger memories uh, one of them being mount airy lodge which was a hotel in the poconos and sports phone right. commercials were were there all all the time you know you turn on the tv you, you're going to see the advertisements and this was really i mean let's be honest this was really a service that attracted gamblers because they wanted to know the up to up to date scores as, as up to date as possible so they could place new bets, but for sports minded folks like us who might have been a little younger, uh, we just wanted to know the the scores. It was so neat that we could get uh you know scores on the phone and not have to wait until the six p m newscast or the eleven p m newscast what's really interesting about that Mike is that it was the beginning of information consciousness that really showed us in retrospect um, how much of a information hungry culture we are, because now we get it with, you know, pressing a few buttons on a phone and you can get any score you want. You can get any pitch count you want. You can even get the placement of the pitches with the apps that MLB has available but to think that once upon a time you had to call in to find the uh you know the latest score that's pretty funny that's a pretty funny thing and, you know when i was a kid we didn't have all this you know you you start to sound like your grandparents did way back when
1: it was either that or waiting for Jerry uh, Gerard on on 11
2: alive uh, uh, channel 11 right right wpix no but like and and one right. day somebody was like when i was Somebody's gonna tell their kid when I was a kid I had to update my MLB at that app.
3: <laughs> well my my, my Mike and I are Mike and I are of the generation who'll say, you know, when I was a kid I had to walk eight feet through shag carpet just to change the channel.
1: <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> And now you can talk into
3: your remote control, and 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 you can just say whatever channel you want, and it will change automatically.
1: Well, you know what? I was fortunate enough to have a little black and white TV in my room as a child. Me too. And I would watch the Met game after they're back, jump out. Change the channel, put right. on the Yankee game After they're at back, get up, change the channel Put on the Met game And that's how I spent my evenings Back and forth, back mm-hmm. and forth At some point I learned how to keep one game on the radio And one game on the TV uh, right. Enough with that uh, Mr. Krell Tell yes, us where we can buy this book And what else you have done And where they can get it
3: Well, I have three books Another anthology I edited The New York Yankees in Popular Culture And uh, the book that I wrote in 2015, Our Bums, The Brooklyn Dodgers in History, Memory, and Popular Culture. All three are available on Amazon.
1: And with that, we will end this, I think, unless you guys have any outstanding topics. With the 19th Uh, Century Mets.
3: Well, the 19th Century Mets... The original Metropolitans, that was written by Bill Lamb. Uh, Bill's a good friend of mine. Bill presents regularly at Sabre's 19th Century Symposium in Cooperstown, and he's an expert on the 19th century and the turn of the century, um, you know, ball playing. And I was so glad to have this because it's a nod to history, especially Mets people ought to have a passing knowledge of John B. Day and Erastus Wyman and the New York Metropolitans. They didn't last very long. I mean, it was less than a decade, but it's an important part. It's the namesake. It's part of our legacy. It's part of our heritage. And if they ever redo the rotunda to reflect purely Mets history... I hope that there's a place or a timeline somewhere for what Bill wrote about because we ought to know what this team was about. If that's how we got the name in 1962, we ought to know where it came from. I mean, that's what history is about. And you mentioned the West Wing um, before about swagger. That's because I referenced to characters toby being a yankees fan josh being a mets fan and basically calculating during the universe of the show that josh probably grew up in the 80s and it's noted in at least three episodes that he's a mets fan so he might have gotten his swagger from being a mets fan at least that's the thesis that i have in the chapter and if you're a fan of the show i think you'll really
1: like the essay Sam, you know we don't have a problem per se with something being done to embrace all of New York City baseball history somehow, some way in, in City Field. Uh, I agree a million percent that the original Metropolitans of the 19th century should some way, somehow be represented at City Field. Uh, certainly, there's you can't undo the facade, obviously. Uh but leveling the playing field, incorporating some of their true legacy, the New York Giants, would be appropriate no
2: uh yeah, you know, and, and in that, I would love to figure out and and ask him uh what his parents' legacy is when it comes to national league baseball uh I mean, he was talking about his father bringing him to the polo ground. Um, and that's one of the things that has endeared him to Mets fans is the fact that he mentioned the polo ground in like the first like six or seven words of his, of his opening statement, you know? Um, so in that, I, I would love to find out what Steve Cohen's background was because we all knew obviously what uh, Fred Wilpon's background was. And I, I don't want to get into whether or not the rotunda should be changed Um but I do wonder I, I, i'm I, I you know especially considering that Cohen was showing a lot of respect to Fred, not necessarily Jeff, but a lot of respect to Fred uh, I wonder whether he would keep that intact, but you're absolutely right that something needs to be done, and especially whether or not it has to do especially with the you know the, the the current wearer of number twenty four being suspended for the year and probably never playing another game in the Mets uh, uh, realm, at, let alone the baseball realm. That number twenty four is gone. Why not let nobody ever wear it again and retire it with Willie Mays, which would be a great homage to Joan Payson as you build her statue. So. Um, a lot but, of things but that Willie, can be done.
3: But Sam, Willie Mays only played with the Mets for a year and a half.
2: And this subject comes up yeah, all the I time. Think I think, I think she I wanted a statue of, or she wanted to retire it, uh, and I, I don't think that's appropriate. But I actually, and Mike, I'll send it to you after this, I think that would be an appropriate homage to the Giants. And it would be uh, the same way Milwaukee retired Hank Aaron's number. I believe that's true. Uh it, it doesn't matter whether or not he played it, it has to do with the legacy. And I think Willie Mays, uh, especially considering the legacy and that he played with the Mets is ever deserving of it. And I think it would, it would tie the giants in, uh, in other, you know, in, in one way. And you could, we could discuss other ways, Mike.
1: Well, I, you know, I think we need a compromise, uh, He is beloved because of his New York baseball history, you know, and when he was brought here, that was taken into consideration. Everyone loved to see him back. If you don't retire the number, perhaps you don't need to retire the number, but you can put it in the closet and not give it out. However, a statue, I think a life-size statue somewhere inside the stadium, where people can just walk up and take pictures, you know, selfies, if you will, of a life-size statue instead of something much more grander that we have in mind for Hodges, Joan Payson, Tom Seaver, uh, and whomever else comes down the way. Uh, but something low-key, Something low-key, something within the the, the, the park itself, you know, on, on the first level or even on the second level, somewhere where people can walk up to it, life-size you know, statue of Willie Mays wearing the New York uniform. I think that's the important thing. Just wearing the New York uniform. He is so iconic as a New York giant and then he was brought back by whom? Mrs. Joan Payson. You know, and he played for that National League Championship team. So I think it's a a low key homage. You don't have to go Uber crazy with, you know, a fifteen foot statue. You don't even have to retire the number. But you know, be a little bit more careful as to who you're giving it out, if you're he, if going to give it out at all. David, would you care to add? But, but sure, there's a
3: danger in doing that because when you go into Citi Field, you go into the rotunda, and you're overwhelmed with Brooklyn Dodgers' photos and information. And if you do what you're talking about, it further reinforces the psychology that the Mets don't have a rich history, so they have to celebrate the, being part of something bigger and celebrate the history of the National League, when in fact the Mets have a rich history that dates back nearly 60 years. So I've seen this subject come up many times. I've heard it talked about at Sabre conferences, whether Willie's number should be retired, and I, I just don't think so. He was in New York for what uh, seven years before they moved something like that to San Francisco. Then he was here for a year and a half I, to retire. The number he he he's more a San Francisco icon than a New York icon, and I, that might be heresy in some areas of you know of for Giants fans. But uh, but you know, he, he was, only
2: won a World Championship in New
3: York. That that's that's all fine, Sam, but. You know, when are the Mets fan base? When is the Mets fan base? Let me put it to you this way: When is the Mets fan base going to rise up and say, "Okay, here's our history. We're proud of it. It wasn't always great, and it wasn't always fun, but we're proud of it." When is that well, day going I, you know, to look, happen? I think
2: I partly why Casey needs a statue and why Joe needs a statue is because. That's part of uh, what we've been arguing for the Wilpons to do is to accept the history because they've been very neglectful of it. And but really not part of our history.
3: Not really. Not, well, not, no, substantively, I, not substantively I, enough to make it happen.
2: I hear what you're saying, you see, but I, I, I think I, it's also the counterpart to the Dodgers part is what we're arguing. I, well, I, I, I think it's two, two different Go ahead. That,
3: well, look, well, okay. Here, here's, how, here's how to do it. Here's how to do it, okay? You, you, can, you can honor Jackie with a statue inside or some big plaque inside. I, I would prefer a statue inside. You keep the name of the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. Unless you want to name it the Jackie Robinson Willie Mays Rotunda. And then you have a statue of both of them inside the Rotunda. And that solves your problem. And we've talked about this before. Take the Brooklyn Dodgers photos down put up the Mets history, honor Jackie with a statue. If you're going to put Willie in there, honor him with a statue. That's a lot more prominent than these pictures. And then you could have the pictures of Piazza with the 9-11 home run, with Seaver winning a Cy Young Award, with Matlack winning Rookie of the Year, with Kingman's home runs, with Game 6 in 86, with the uh, 2000 Subway Series. I mean, there are so many iconic moments to choose from. And when you walk into that ballpark, you should know this is where the Mets play. And if you took somebody who didn't know anything about baseball and didn't know where they were mm-hmm. except the names of the teams in the stadiums and you put them in, in the rotunda, you took those people, put them in the rotunda, they would think they're at Dodger Stadium. There's a way to satisfy history. And and to doing it that way at the expense of the Mets history is I just think not, it, it's just not effective, and I I I think yeah. the majority of fans feel that way. But this is our ballpark; it should reflect our legacy. It should reflect our history. If you want to honor Jackie Robinson, naming the rotunda after him, then do that, but do it in a in a. A more effective way, and maybe Mr. Cohen will take some of these ideas under under consideration. I'm, who the who the heck knows? I'm sure people have talked to him about it. It may be something that he's already thought of. But I, I don't well, can disagree I just that Willie can be can honored, I, but you know, do it in the right I, way. Can I
2: just ask this, uh, Mike? Um, it, and, and I think it. I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, would people be so hateful of the rotunda if the Wilpons had a little bit more of a successful run on the baseball field?
1: Yes. (laughs) Would people be more agreeable with the rotunda in its present state had the Wilpons won more? Is that the question?
2: Yes, that's the question. Exactly.
1: I disagree. No, I disagree 100%. The damage is done in all aspects, on the field, the stadium, you name it, the damage is done. Look, I agree with both sides of the fence. And, again, I'll say the damage is already done. What do we do moving forward? Now, first and foremost, Citi Field needs to be a shrine to the Mets. I don't make that an issue. First and foremost – as David as you say when you walk into the place when you walk upon the place you should know instantly this is a shrine to the Mets. Now on a smaller scale as we've been discussing mm-hmm. I see no I have no compunction with celebrating New York City's National League heritage or baseball going all the way back to the 1860s you know for that matter. I don't have a problem with any of that for as long as it's Smaller in scale yes. and, and, you know, perceptible to the observant fan. I don't need it to be so audacious. It should not overwhelm and overpower anything Mets. First and foremost, Mets. Then on the periphery, you can celebrate the National League heritage and the baseball heritage of New York City. I'm open to that. I welcome it. But first and foremost, we need a shrine to the Mets. There's nothing you can do about the exterior. It's set literally in stone. The rotunda can be redesigned. A lot of things in that place can be redone. Yeah. If we had our druthers, we'd all set some dynamite to it, implode it, and build a new place and call this place, you know, the shrine to the Mets. I think we all want that, but I think it needs to be a compromise. No, Willie Mays Sam, did not get a 15-footer.
3: Go ahead. Sam, if, if, the, if the Mets had won five consecutive World Series titles under the Wilpons, the feelings about the Rotunda would have been magnified because yep. people would be saying, geez, we're, we're the greatest team in baseball. How come we're still honoring a team that abandoned the city 60 years ago?
2: Right, why are you know, like, that? at the same time, though, at the same time, though, it's not just about his love of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and that's where he kind of gets away with it is the fact that it's about Jackie Robinson that transcends that Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team and 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 that's all I'm saying is that that's where the trouble lies is the fact that it's jackie Robinson well, but that's there is phone. no trouble it's named
3: after him it's named after him. That should be honor enough. And if we want to go further, then there can be something more. But as Mike says, you're overpowering the Mets. You're overpowering the 60-year history of the team. It's basically giving a, a, a stiff arm to the Mets fans, which already have an inferiority complex. I mean, just read the papers. Read how much coverage the Mets get versus the Yankees. You know, sixty years later, it, the Mets are still seen in a lot of ways as the kid brother, and I, I just I, would, I, would. It, I it, it, it's 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 hard to find the words because when I go in that rotunda and I look forward to going to a game and then I look up and I see a team that I wrote about I wrote a book about that team, so I I know it fairly well and I'm appreciative of the history, but that team is gone you know that team left in 1957 and it's wonderful to acknowledge New York baseball history and maybe there can be a timeline around the ballpark uh, Camden Yards has that Camden Yards has oversized photos of great moments in Orioles history maybe that's what we could be doing somewhere so it's going to take somebody who has experience in in perhaps a museum some kind of ex- exhibiting experience to figure out a more effective and efficient way of doing that, but start including the Mets history. I mean, what do they have? They have these banners outside that you have to look up and you can barely see who it is. They're not even big banners of players. That's crazy.
1: (laughs) Those banners are insulting. Look, it's the Wilpon's folly. Sam, if you think he built that place for us, you're mistaken. He built that place out of pure self-satisfaction. He took the blueprints, threw them on the architect's desk, and says, this is what I want. His boyhood passion. When the place opened up, it had no Hall of Fame. It didn't even have the banners. The the home run apple was stuffed away in a closet. No inkling that place was the Mets' home ball field. None. Until you got inside and the boys took the field, or if you read it on the scoreboard, but walking up on it, you had no idea. And,
2: and, and, and listen, and you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I'm not arguing with that. I was only arguing the Jackie robinson specifics perspective. But not only what you're talking about uh, in terms of the outside and right when you got to the inside, but even when the Mets took the field, there were some major issues, not only with the actual ball club, but specifically the way the ball club was designed around that ballpark, that new ballpark, oh. where they he tried to be he tried to be all Ebbets Field pinbally, in, a, in you know where where the only reason it was a pinball was because they had to build it within a square uh, block of New York City space. Whereas here, they had an entire Shea Stadium parking lot to build, and it got outlandish. And still, to this day, we, we are challenged by the way the original uh, dimensions of that ballpark were. So even when the Mets took the, ball, the, the field, um, we mm-hmm. had that issue.
1: That place is completely contrived, as you say, once you get inside, completely contrived with all the nooks and crannies and the Great Wall of Flushing. Stupid. Stupid. Look, now that I'm in a rage, I will ask you, gentlemen, if you have any more outstanding (laughs) questions, comments, or rude remarks, let them fly or hold your peace. I have
3: nothing more to
1: add. Going twice. Sam? Sam?
2: I'm good, man.
1: All right. That being said, we will move on to our final word before we do that. Mr. David Krell, thank you so much for returning to a Metzian podcast. I hope thank you, you did your work some justice this evening and gave it a second wind. Uh, I certainly appreciate your work and uh, everybody else's involvement in the essays. Uh, entertaining, I learned several things, several things, one of which I highlighted here. Uh, and I can't seem to find it. I wanted to point it out, and unfortunately, it escaped my, my mind. Otherwise, again, take a moment out. Please tell everyone, inform everyone how they can go about purchasing this and what of the works you've done and sure. uh, how they can go about securing it.
3: Uh, the New York Mets in Popular Culture is available on Amazon, and my other two books are there as well, The New York Yankees in Popular Culture, another anthology that I edited, and Our Bombs: The Brooklyn Dodgers in History, Memory, and Popular Culture.
1: So, Sam, I will move on to you. Uh, your final word, sir.
2: Uh, first of all, David, thank you so much for joining us. I think uh, my final word will be in uh, how appreciative I am that you have put this together. Um, the Mets, the Mets, Mets. That's my final word. Uh, what you know? What? What this team is? Uh, and we didn't even. I, I even meant meant to mention the men in black connection from the popular culture and that uh, especially the third movie, uh, it has a lot to do with uh, the the 69 Mets. Um, So there's something that has, that everybody has captured uh, their imagination when it comes to this team. And it's just so exciting uh, that you've been able to gather it in the way that you have been able to. So thank you, David. I appreciate you joining us
3: tonight. Thank you. It was a team effort, truly. The contributors really came through. They were passionate about their topics, and they really peeled back the layers and carved out new areas of scholarship and took me down roads I didn't even anticipate when they first told me about the topics.
2: Excellent. Mike? I will
1: move on to Mr. Krell, if you have any last comments. Otherwise, your final word, sir.
3: Final word, be safe, stay hydrated. Uh, Hopefully, in 2021, we'll be able to go to the ballpark and celebrate and watch our teams in the stands, but it's going to be a long winter, so stock up and stay safe.
1: Well said, well said. Uh, On behalf of our partner, Rich Spirago, who was unable to uh, join us this evening. Thank you, everyone, for joining and listening to a Metzian podcast with our guest this evening, David Krell. Uh, my final word is: Let's go stems. There's something for pop culture. Let's go stems. Sam, take us home.
2: Well, I believe uh, it, was that David Kingman. Mike, did Dave Kingman say something like that?
1: Uh, that was that was said to Dave Kingman. Am I right, David? <laughs> right. I That
3: I, I that I don't know for sure. I'd have to. Oh, that was I Tom Seaver. To, uh, I'd they, have to research that.
1: That was uh, Tom Seaver. He said it to... I don't think it was Dave I feel Kingman. like Keith uh, Hernandez Tom has Ke- something to do with that. Uh, Keith Hernandez, that's what it is. Tom Seaver in 83 said it to Keith Hernandez. He said, welcome to the STEMS. S-T-E-M-S. <laughs>
2: Exactly, and it was probably very lucky that uh, for Keith Hernandez that Tom Seaver was on that 1983 team uh, that everybody shouted at, and we can't wait to shout again at them, Let's Go Mets. Let's Go Mets, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for listening out there. Thanks, David. Thanks,
3: Mike. Take care, guys. Good
2: night, all. Bye-bye. Thank you, David.